Please take a seat. The reading is 2 Timothy chapter 2 from verses 14 to 26 and can be found on page 1196 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back and page numbers for those are on the screen. Starting at verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must also be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Roz, uh, for reading that. Please do keep it open uh, so we can look at those verses together. If you've not met, my name is uh, Richard. I'm one of the ministers here, uh, and it's great uh, to have you with us. Should we pray together? We've just sung, we believe in one true God, Father, Spirit, Son. And the longer form of the creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit who has spoken through the prophets. And so, our Father, we declare before you again today, as we sit before your word, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that he caused these words to be written through the Apostle Paul. We believe that through them today, he speaks and governs and rules and guides and shapes and comforts and teaches the church. And so we long, our Father, please would your spirit teach us this morning. Please would he speak to us this morning at the words that we need to hear. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you a fighter or a lover? Are you a fighter or a lover? Especially when there's a disagreement. When there's a disagreement, by instinct, by nature, 
Are you a fighter or a lover? If you don't know, you could ask uh, someone who knows you well. They'll know. Uh, are you a fighter or a lover? That is, uh, do, do you fight? There's a disagreement, and you think, what we need to do, we need to work out who thinks what, who's right, who's wrong. Actually, I need to prove that I'm right. Do you fight? Are you a lover? There's a disagreement, but let's smooth that over. Let's downplay the fact we disagree. Let's make sure we all get along. We're still all friends. It doesn't matter that we disagree. Are you a fighter or a lover? And my guess is that your instinctive answer to that will shape the kind of Christian ministry that you particularly appreciate, that you particularly value. Do you want from Christian ministers those who will fight or those who will love? When there's a disagreement in the church, do you most want a minister who will come along and sort out who's right and who's wrong? Do you most want a Christian minister who will come and say, don't worry about that, we're together? I ask because these verses from 2 Timothy uh, tell us what we need from Christian ministers and Christian ministry and tell us that we need both. We need, Paul will tell Timothy, will tell us, Christian ministers who are ready to fight and who are ready to love both together. And so I expect a passage like this, a sermon like this, will leave most of us uncomfortable. Because for some of us, the language of fighting, it might just seem too tough, too, uh, too in danger of forgetting love, too in danger of, of dividing Christian unity, and in that sense, unchristian. But for others of us, the talk of love will feel, maybe it's a little bit too soft. Maybe there's a danger of forgetting that there are important truths that need to be contended for. Maybe in that sense, it will forget Christian truth and be unchristian. And so for lots of us from different directions, a passage like this will be unsettling because it'll say, not just fighting, not just loving, but both. As you've seen over the last few weeks, uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy uh, leading a church in Ephesus, Holy Trinity Ephesus, we could call it. And uh, Paul is writing to Timothy in a context of suffering, we've seen over the last few weeks. And a context where there are other teachings around that are different from what Paul and the apostles have handed down, different than what the Holy Spirit has spoken, has breathed into the scriptures. And in the context of those false teachings, Paul's writing to Timothy saying, you need to fight and you need to love. Uh, particularly, uh, you need to fight false teaching. Where there are ideas about Jesus Christ... Things presented as truth that are false, you need to fight that. And, Timothy, you need to love false teachers. To fight false teaching and love false teachers, both, not just one. Now, we'll take them in the order that they come in uh, the passage. So we'll see first, uh, Christian ministers must fight false teaching. The first few verses of our passage, verse 14, 15, 16, there's kind of the same pattern twice. There's a, a positive command, a negative command, and then a reason. But for simplicity, we'll just take uh, the positive commands together first. So verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Keep reminding them of these things. Correctly handle the word of truth. In other words, putting those together... 
keep telling them what the Bible says about Jesus. Timothy says, Paul, you have to keep telling them what the Bible says about Jesus. Remind them of these things, the things I've just said, that Jesus is reigning and one day we'll reign with him. Keep telling them about Jesus from the Bible, working hard to correctly handle the word of truth, to tell people what the Bible actually says. That's the positive way that Timothy will fight false teaching by holding out something that's true, something that's dependable, something that gives life. Keep telling them about Jesus from the Bible. Which means in a church we can't have the Bible too much. The call is keep reminding God's people of these things. And there will be good things that we would love our Christian ministers to have time to do that they won't have time to do because they are committed to working hard to understand what the Bible actually says and what it means for us and how to teach it. To fight false teaching, positively, Christian ministers will spend a lot of time with the Bible, trying to understand it, meditate on it, reflect on it. What does it mean for us? Lord, what are you calling us to do in this passage? And we'll just keep talking about it. Positively, and then negatively, in the middle of verse 14, warn them before God against quarreling about words. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter. Here's the other flip, the flip side of fighting false teaching. It's to warn against quarreling about words. It's to avoid godless chatter. And who are these godless chatterers, these word quarrelers? Paul gives an example uh, in the middle of verse 17. Uh, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have, I don't know if you know anyone called Hymenaeus and Philetus. Maybe it's because of this. Those names have gone out of fashion at the awkward, if you found your name in the Bible, and uh, learned that you had departed from the truth. But there it is. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Now, of course, Jesus' resurrection has taken place. Paul says that earlier in this chapter. But he also says there's a future resurrection for Christians to look forward to. He said... Uh, earlier in this chapter, if we've died with him, we will, future, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. In the future, there's a resurrection for Christians to look forward to. And Hymenaeus and Philetus seem to be saying, it's already happened. You can have it now. You don't have to wait. You can have the blessings and the victory now. We don't know exactly what they were teaching, but still today, you'll find all kinds of places that will, people who will tell you, that because Jesus has won a victory, you can have health and you can have wealth now. That's a guaranteed promise. Jesus won. You'll find people telling you you can live a life of, of victory and sinlessness and perfection now. You don't have to wait for it. You can have it now. The resurrection's already come. And what does that teaching do? At the end of verse 18, they say the resurrection's taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Well, of course, how else could it be? You go to a conference, you hear that there's victory now, that if you, if you trust Jesus and in his name, you, you, you won't suffer, you can live a victorious, sinless life, and then you come home full of excitement, full of hope, and then you get sick and you sin. And that faith is destroyed because it can't survive contact with the real world. They destroy the faith of some. That is why... Paul says to Timothy, you must fight false teaching. It will destroy people's faith. 
Well, just as it was read, did you hear the other things Paul says about it? Verse 14, it is of no value. It ruins those who listen. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. What starts in the head as a new idea, an exciting new novel idea, ends up changing the way people live. And they become more and more ungodly. Or verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. That is, their teaching will be popular. At gangrene, you get an infection in one bit of you, and it spreads through your body very quickly. But it's a poison that kills. Paul says of this teaching, this false teaching, it ruins, it leads to ungodliness, more and more ungodliness. It's like gangrene, it's a popular poison, and it destroys. Timothy, you have to fight false teaching. And you fight it because there is something so much better. Verse 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Even in a church where this stuff has crept in, as it seems to have done in Holy Trinity Ephesus, even in a church where there is this poison and destructive and ruining teaching that's going around, Paul says, no, God's solid foundation stands firm. There is a foundation in the scriptures that is safe and solid, and you can build your life on it. It's sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. As messy as church life might be, the Lord knows those who are his. And so everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That's the call to fight again, must must turn away. Timothy is to warn people that what they're hearing from Hymenaeus and Philetus might sound exciting, might sound new, might sound full of hope. It is dangerous. Timothy is to call people to avoid it, to turn away from it. Christian ministers must fight false teaching because false teaching will destroy God's people. Individually, will destroy churches. Fight and love. We'll get to love in a second. Let me just say, in a youngish crowd like this, there's always been false teaching in the church. There always will be until Jesus returns. The internet means we can get access to a lot more of it. Now, on the internet, there are hundreds of preachers who love Christ and love his people and love his word and will teach us all kinds of things that will strengthen us and build us up. And there are plenty who won't. I was just thinking this week, the thing that's particularly dangerous about the internet is you don't know who's speaking to you. You don't know if they're the kind of person we'll see in a moment who will love people. YouTube doesn't look at the passages in the Bible that say uh, what you have to be, uh, what you have to be like in order to lead and teach a church. YouTube doesn't care about that. They'll give anyone a channel. And you don't know the person. You don't know what they're like with their family when they're at home. You don't know how they treat the people around them. I can think of some people when I was a student, some people that I listened to online, and 10, 12 years later, Actually, things about them have emerged in crumbs. That's not someone I want to be listening to. You just don't know. And so particularly if there's things that you hear on the internet that you've never heard someone speak to you in person, someone that you know loves you and loves the Lord, would you be cautious? Would you be willing to say to someone else, I've I've heard this, it sounds, it was a new sort of idea, it sounds exciting, it sounds great, they've got Bible verses, is it right? 
Because there is teaching that will destroy and ruin and poison. Christian ministers must fight false teaching. And Christian ministers must love false teachers. Must love false teachers. At the beginning of this section, uh, Paul gives uh, an image, an analogy. Verse 20, he says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for special purposes, some for common use. Uh, For years, I've been involved in uh, Christian summer camps, sort of residential things for teenagers, and uh, when I was a student, I was involved in one, and a little team of us did quite a lot of sort of cleaning and washing up and had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, the school had this rule, which every year they told us the rule over and over again, uh, because it was important. Pink for the sink, blue for the loo. I don't know if you've come across that, but when you've got any kind of cloths or anything like that, pink for the sink. So in the kitchen, you're cleaning things up with a pink sink that never goes in the loo. In the toilet, you're cleaning things with the blue cloth, blue for the loo, and that never goes in the kitchen. And they told us that every year, every year, every year, because of course it matters. You don't want to get those mixed up. And that's Paul's point. There are some things for special purposes, some for common use. You don't want to get them mixed up. You take the blue cloth, you spend the morning cleaning the toilet, and you say, oh, I'll take this cloth to the kitchen and start cleaning the cutlery with it. Forgive me for that image. But Paul says, people are going to get sick. You're going to do a lot of harm if you mix those things up. And what's his point? Verse 21, those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful, the master, prepared to do any good work. For a Christian minister to be useful and holy and ready to do good work, there's something they have to cleanse themselves from. Otherwise, they will be as dangerous as a blue cloth cleaning the cutlery. And what is it? What is it they have to cleanse themselves from? Well, verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth. And it doesn't mean drug, sex, rock and roll. Because the context is this context of a fight where there's false teaching going around and there's, there's divisions and people taking sides. And in that context, the evil desires of youth, and this can be true of older people as well, but particularly young people, particularly often young men, the desire, the evil desire is to win, to fight to win, to show that I'm right and you're wrong to show that I'm superior. That's the evil desire. And we know that because the the contrast in the rest of the verse, flee the evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Timothy, you, you have to love. You have to pursue peace. Even in a church that's dividing and divided, even in a church where people are telling lies about the Lord Jesus, which are destroying people, you have to pursue peace. Timothy, you have to love false teachers while you're fighting false teaching. Paul goes on, verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Don't like if like me, I find verse twenty-four it's a slightly odd little list because that phrase "able to teach." I don't know what comes to your mind if you if someone was described as being able to teach. I don't know instinctively what you'd think about them. If you knew nothing else but that they were able to teach, to me that suggests things like 
intelligence and insightfulness and eloquence. But what does Paul pair them with, match them with? Not being quarrelsome, being kind, not being resentful. They're, they're relational qualities. They're aspects of love. Paul says for someone to be able to teach, they, they must love people. Otherwise, what they're saying might be true and they might be trumpeting at full volume, but no one's going to listen, no one's going to learn, they can't teach. And verse 24 must be kind to everyone, which must include false teachers. In fact, I think especially Paul's talking about false teachers because verse 25, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. See, Paul, for all that he'll fight false teaching, he fears for the false teachers. They have been, he says, taken captive by the devil to do his will. Not in a kind of spooky horror film kind of way. They've been possessed and now their every movement is. But simply that the devil loves when there are lies in a church. He loves when people start believing false things that destroy faith, that ruin lives. The devil loves that. And these teachers, they're doing that for him. And Paul says what's going to happen to them is terrifying. And so his hope, do you see that word verse 25? In the hope His hope for false teachers isn't that they die, isn't that they go away, isn't that they're beaten, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Because God is powerful and his grace reaches far and there is no one, however many lies they've told, however false and damaging what they've taught, there is no one who God cannot bring to repentance and restoration. And so Paul longs for that. He loves even false teachers, and he speaks to them. He calls Timothy to speak to them in a way that's not quarrelsome, that's gentle, that's kind, in the hope that they'll come back to speak about them, to speak to them in such a way to make it as easy as possible for them to come to repentance and restoration and a knowledge of the truth. Again, a, a youngish crowd in the room, probably, I know, I know not everyone, but uh, some of our, our younger members of the church are here at the 11.30 service, and some are wondering about, in the future, uh, some kind of uh, full-time Christian ministry, wondering about applying in the next couple of months to be a ministry trainee here or, or something similar in another church, another place. Many are involved in all kinds of forms of ministry at the moment, with small groups, with children and youth. And as we're thinking, who is it? What should the sort of person be like who will pursue ministry? I think an interesting question to ask is, what would your opponents, your theological opponents, make of you being a minister? You see, I find often, if if I'm disagreeing with someone, if I'm in a confrontation about something that matters, then in the back of my mind, I've got all of my theological friends And they're sort of there, you know, sort of cheering me on, as it were. And actually, rather than speaking to the person in front of me, I'm tempted to just say what they want to hear. And as I say things, I'm thinking, would my would my friends agree with this? You know, my small group leaders, would they think, yeah, that's the right thing to say. Well done. Sock it to them. 
But actually, I think it matters what the opponent would say of you. Are there people who would say of you, if you're considering some kind of ministry role, are there people who would say of you, I don't like what you teach. I don't like what you believe. Which I think is abhorrent. But I respect you. And I can see why you should be a Christian minister, even though I don't like the things you're teaching. That might be a test uh, for some of us to consider. But of course, others of us uh, won't be uh, in full-time ministry. Most of us won't be in Timothy's sort of role. How you finish? Let me suggest two uh, ways I think this uh, might impact us, all of us, together. Uh, the first is... I'd love us to see in this passage that fighting and love go together. They're not contradictory. Let me tell you a story. I won't give you any of the um, gory details, but uh, a situation a few years ago where someone uh, was teaching in such a way that after a period of time, the leaders in that place said publicly, this person isn't welcome to teach here anymore. Because what they're teaching is dangerous, is false, is hurting people. And you can imagine, just imagine that something like that would have to happen here at Platt. You can imagine how painful that was for everyone involved. Here's someone who we've ministered alongside, who we've loved for years, and now we're hearing this. And actually, in this particular example, that person told all kinds of stories of how they'd been badly treated by other leaders, of how things had been made up about them, of how they'd been badly treated, and made out that the leaders of the church, they were fighting, but they weren't loving. Years later, some things emerged that that individual had done, ways that they'd behaved behind closed doors. They were awful. And the, the leaders in the place could have said... All of that up front. They could have painted the whole picture, but they didn't because they wanted to love him. And they longed for him to come back, and they didn't want to do anything that would make that harder, anything that would drive them away more than was necessary. And ironically, precisely because they loved him and wanted to speak about him in ways that were gentle and kind and respectful, that gave an opening for him to claim that they'd been unloving. See, we don't always see the full picture. If a church takes a position that seems like it's just about fighting, you don't know what's happened behind closed doors. You don't know what conversations have happened with that individual, what tears have been shed with them and over them, what prayers have been prayed, what what urgings have been made. The fact that something looks like fighting doesn't mean that it's not loving. And of course, the same is true the other way. You see a church take a position that looks soft and wimpy and weak. You don't know what's happened behind the scenes in terms of uh, tough conversations. You don't know how much worse the situation could have been if someone hadn't been bold enough to contend with someone, to to persuade them, to urge them to come back. You, You just don't know what's happened behind the scenes. But in these verses, fighting and loving, they go together. They're not contradictory. On the other hand, of course, There'll be plenty of times when Christian ministers get this wrong. There'll be plenty of times when Christian ministers fight and forget to love, or love and forget to fight. And so secondly, I, as someone who teaches here, 
others who are on the staff team, your small group leaders, those who have ministry uh, roles, would love you to pray for us. Now, if I'm honest, in 2 Timothy, it's a book, it's a strange sort of letter, isn't it? Because it's written to a Christian leader, and most of us aren't Christian leaders, and so what do we do with it? And one of the things is pray for Christian leaders that they'd be able to be like this. And I hear that, and I think, I don't actually know quite how to do that. And what, like, uh, so can I give a practical suggestion? Is there one time this week that you could set a bit aside a bit of time to pray for your small group leaders, for ministers here at church, for, for ministers you know in other contexts and other places, these things that they would fight when they should, that they would love? And what would be a time that would work for you? Is, is there a, a time you have to pray you know, regularly in a week? And could one of those times be given just to pray for this? Or do you live with other Christians, housemates who are Christians? Could, you, know, you have tea together generally on a Wednesday evening. Would, could one of you suggest, should we pray for a few minutes after tea on a Wednesday for this? Because just as you will instinctively fight or love more, same is true for me, same is true for other ministers. And sometimes we know we're screwing it up. And sometimes the situations are complicated. And we don't know. Is, is, is saying that thing to that person, is that, is that going too far? Is that fighting too hard or is that being too soft? It's, sometimes it's complicated. And so would you pray? What I'm going to do, I'm going to leave a moment uh, for us to think. Is, is there a time this week I could give a little bit of time to pray? I'm going to give a moment for us to think that, then I'm going to pray. Uh, hand back over to Tim. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. Our Father, that's a comfort because our lives are messy and churches are messy and we don't know uh, always who is sincerely misguided, who is deliberately opposing the Christian gospel. We don't know what love looks like in a particular situation, what appropriate fighting looks like, but you know who is yours and your solid foundation stands firm. And so we pray for ourselves as a church, would you protect us from false teaching that will damage and ruin and destroy? Please would you help us to fight where and how we should and please really protect us from being, from enjoying any of those things. Please would we love those who've wandered astray. Please would we hope for them to return. And so please would we be loving and respectful and kind and gracious and gentle in the way we speak to and about one another. And Father, we long for that day of resurrection where there will be peace perfectly, where there'll be truth perfectly, where we'll perfectly love and we'll no longer need to fight. Father, we long for that day. We ask you to bring it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.